Let's go ahead and begin our study this morning. We are in the dead center of a eight-week study called Politics by Design. And uh, before we get into uh, our topic this morning, I want to both look backwards and look forward. I want to lay out where we've been and talk about where we're going from this point. Basically, up to this point, we've laid a foundation. Um, Last week, I used the illustration of the four points of a compass just to keep our mind on track with what we've seen so far. So let me review it again very quickly. The first thing we saw is the true north of our compass. We saw that God intended, designed, and created humankind in his image. And a significant part of what that means is that we were created to represent his rule by ruling on the earth and cultivating the earth as he does in a way that represents him. And so human beings have been gifted or empowered with the ability to impact the world around them, to subcreate was the word that J.R. Tolkien liked to use. To take what God has made and make something even more out of it. To take the raw ingredients and, and use them for beautiful things. Um, and so, so the idea of politics proper, of community, working together to make something like a city, is built right into what it means to be human by design. It's part of what Pastor Matt talked about this morning that falls under that category of God's good creation. But as we saw, although that's what begins and that's God's commissioning in chapter 3 through Adam and Eve's rebellion, things change. Our world is fallen and that includes us. When we talk about the world being corrupted, we're not just talking about tornadoes and hurricanes. We're talking about torture. We're talking about selfishness. Um, We're talking about murder. uh, These types of things. And so the second thing we saw is that God establishes accountability for human beings in Genesis chapter 9 to uphold justice, to maintain, uh, to maintain order, and to recognize when innocent life, for illustration's sake, is lost and hold the taker of innocent life accountable. For anyone who sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And so that is the foundation of government. As we saw the purpose of government in God's design is justice, is to uh, punish evil and reward good, as it says in the New Testament, um, to maintain safety and security and protection and, and just basically hold off, put at stay this fallenness, okay? Um, so <clears throat> that's two points. A third we saw is simultaneous to kind of this holding pattern that we call government, God lays out a new plan, and through Abraham and his descendants, culminating in the sending of Jesus Christ, we have the presentation of the kingdom of God, God's perfect rule and reign in a human being, God become man, Jesus Christ as king. And we saw that that kingdom of God is started, it's inaugurated, it's present in Jesus' work, but he's not yet fully enthroned. He's not, the kingdom is not yet consummated. And so we live in this period between Jesus' beginning work and the final climax of it. 
and then finally we looked at the uh, potential for even governments to be fallen, to be part of the problem, to follow the demonic impulse towards self-enthronement, um, to turn away from God and become idolatrous. Um, and so <clears throat> those four points kind of lay out the world we live in. Okay. Now we're ready to go, okay, so we live in this place where the kingdom of God has begun in Jesus Christ, where government still has a commission, where God's good earth still leads to some flourishing, uh, where government has a tendency or propensity to, towards corruption and abuse and injustice, even though they're supposed to be a tool of justice. So we, we understand that, and the question is, okay, so now how do we live out our lives here? In that period of time. And so today we're going to talk about the nature of the church and the church age that we live in. And then the next three weeks we're going to dial in on specific categories that are important for this engagement. Specifically we're going to talk about uh, the nature of justice, the nature of love, and the nature of wisdom. Okay? And so this is where we get practical and start to engage and go, okay, so what? Now what do we do? How do we think about these things? But before we can talk about love, justice, and wisdom, as important as they are, we need to again review what the church is and how it functions. And so to do that this morning, I actually want to turn to an Old Testament passage in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. So if you have a Bible... Uh, open up to Jeremiah 29. If you're in need of a Bible this morning to read along with us in the back of the pew in front of you, you will find one. There should be an index in the opening pages that will get you to the Old Testament prophet of Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29 is a letter the prophet Jeremiah wrote to those who had been deported from Jerusalem to Babylon by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. At this point, Israel has been under a, a, attack a couple of times, and so uh, effectively these people have been deported to Babylon and are living as exiles. And if you keep reading the book of Jeremiah, they're not the last. This is the fate that's going to come upon all those who were left in Jerusalem as well. Now, the reason why we're looking at this passage is because I think uh, his instructions to the exiles give us a good picture or a good metaphor of our place in the church today. And so specifically, I want you to notice his instruction he gives in verse 4 of Jeremiah chapter 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
Let's pray. God, I don't know if we can really experience the shock of this original audience as they receive this letter from Jeremiah that says, seek the welfare of Babylon. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see through this window into our own lives and that you would help us to get our bearings in the world that we live and the mission you've given us as your church. We pray that you would help us by your spirit this morning, that the spirit would do what Jesus promised it would do and guide us in all truth. We pray for your help this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. It is significant to realize how shocking these instructions are. I want you to remember that not only did Israel have a God-given patriotism, right? They were God's chosen people. They were living in the promised land. They were a kingdom of priests and a nation in God's own name, God's own inheritance. And here they've been defeated and deported. And let me also remind you that Babylon is not a shining example of goodness and humanitarian aid. Nebuchadnezzar was known for being horrendously cruel. At this point, Babylon has basically been on a tirade to conquer the entire known world. And they have done it with blood And they have done it with exploitation and they have pillaged and they have raped and they have dragged these people off to Babylon. And so it's got to be hard to swallow when Jeremiah writes them. And not only does he say, hey, first off, you're going to be there for a while, so settle in. Right? There were other prophets, if you keep reading in this chapter, false prophets who kept saying, hey, this is only temporary. God's going to bring them all back. He's going to put Jehoiachin back on the throne. Everything will be fine. And Jeremiah goes, no, most of you will die in Babylon. You will live out your entire lives before God's next step. Okay? He says, on top of that, be good neighbors. Love your captors. Think of all the other things he could have wrote. Hold out just a little longer. Help is coming. Begin to privately plot and overthrow. You know, none of those things. Seek the welfare of the city where you live. Now, the reason why I wanted to focus on this this morning, because you might say, but but where is the overlap with us? I mean, first off, we're talking about the church in the New Testament. Why did you turn to the Old Testament? I actually did it because we generally, when we talk politics, make the mistake of turning to the Old Testament in the wrong way. You see, we have this danger, effectively, of taking what God did in Israel, Israel with a nation and a king and the Old Testament law, and thinking that the only way that God's way continues in the church is just to move that forward, and now it's the church instead of Israel. And so this can look like a couple of different ways. One of the wrong ways we do this is we think of the church's role in society like the Levitical priesthood and their role in the nation. And so 
the king is one form of government or the president is one form of government or our nation is one form of government and the church exists as the religious component of that. Okay. Now, there's a lot of ways that we extend that that are all in different directions. For some, that becomes a sanctifying of government as it is and now our country is God's country. Now our king is God's king. For others, the tendency is to say there's a distinction between public and private life, between political and religious, and so the church needs to stay in its boundaries. You're just the priesthood. You help people with spiritual problems. The government exists for other reasons. Okay? But both of them draw from the wrong implication. If we want to find a parallel in the Old Testament with us, this is the New Testament chosen illustration. Not that we are a new nation in the sense of a new government. Not that we play a role in our nation in the same way that the priesthood did in Israel. But instead, Peter uses the language of exile. When he writes in 1 Peter to Christians spread across the Roman Empire, he writes to the exiles who have been dissipated across Rome. He takes this language. He says, this is the comparison. Now, why is it a good comparison? Because here, the Jews are called to be participants in the communities in which they find themselves. But they are not to lose their distinction. Okay. In other words, they're to live in Babylon, but not as Babylonians. They're to be present and even pursuing good life, flourishing health and community and even the welfare of the city where they find themselves, but they are not to be assimilated. They are not no longer Jewish. In fact, it's during this time that they continue their presence and their practices. That means kosher laws. That means synagogue. All of these things, they are a distinct people. In fact, that's what we find even in the Roman Empire, right? The Jews maintain their distinction and live out. And so what I'm suggesting to you this morning is Peter draws out this language because it's appropriate. First, because we also as Christians are not called to disappear or to remove ourselves from the communities we found ourselves in, but we are called to live distinctly in that paradigm. I think there's a second reason why this illustration of exile is appropriate. If you want to look at God's plan throughout the Bible chronologically, there's a few times where because of Israel's disobedience, it's as if God just pushes pause on his plans and says, we're just going to stop the clock right there, take a time out, and God isn't actually productively moving forward the plan. Consider the 40 years that Israel wanders in the wilderness because of their disobedience. Right? God had given them a nation. He'd opened a door. He shows them the land and they go, ah, we're not going to do this. This isn't going to work. And so that whole generation wanders around the wilderness while the adults die off. And then God gives the promised land to their children. One way to view the exile is similar. God has created a nation. He has a plan for them. He's going to send them a Messiah. They're supposed to be God's witnesses on earth, but they fail. And they fail abundantly. And so the exile is disciplinary. And it's a 70-year pause on God's plan until he brings them back 
because of his faithfulness, not theirs, brings them back into the land and continues. Okay, and so it's about, from when Jeremiah is writing here, about 475, 80 years before Jesus comes. Okay? There is a parallel there that's important for us. We live in an interim. Not a pause. God is doing something very actively right now. In fact, this pause is not one of discipline, but one of patience. This pause is God's about to roll out his final and total rule. But in the meantime, he puts it on hold and he invites people into that rule. He puts it on hold so that the message of the gospel of the kingdom can go out to all the nations so that they can become a part of the kingdom that God is going to bring. In other words, exile inherently involves anticipation and waiting. It's looking forward. It's holding ground. It's patient. And it exists in this in-between, waiting for the not yet. And so it's not surprising to me that Peter uses this language And what I suggested to you here is that we see Israel called to be in Babylon, participating in Babylon, seeking the welfare of Babylon, but distinct in the midst of it. And I want you to notice that Peter draws out the same conclusions. Very quickly, we won't spend much time here, but go ahead and flip over into the New Testament book of 1 Peter. Just listen to the words of chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The elect exiles, that's the language he chooses here. Okay? But then he doubles back on this uh, in chapter 2, and this is what I want to draw your attention to. Now, Here in chapter 2, he is talking to Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, and he does so using the language that has been reserved historically for Israel. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. But you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Okay, Peter here plunders the Old Testament titles for Israel and applies them to Christians. And notice they're strangely incompatible. What does it mean here when he says that we are a chosen race? When the church is made up of Jew and Gentile and Ethiopian and Scythian and barbarian, right? What does it mean here when it says the church is a holy nation? When innately the church is international, does not have its own government, does not have its own land, doesn't employ its own army. But he still takes this language. He, he draws a line of continuity between the same. And he says, this is now how God is doing these things. Okay. Then notice he says it's a, that we are a people for his own, God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, the role we've been given, just like Israel, is one of proclamation. Israel was to be representative of God's rule for the sake of the nations, 
a witness of who God was. So is the church. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in the first half of this, he says, holy nation. God's elect. Then notice what he changes tone here. and He provides another window in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What does it mean to be a holy nation and be an exile? Do you see the tension between those things? Do you see how he lays one metaphor and then lays another right next to it that doesn't seem compatible? But that's what Israel was in Jeremiah 29. They are still God's people, even if they're under discipline. They are still representative of his glory, but now they are exiled and living in a land that is not their land, a home that is not their home, waiting for a city whose foundations are laid by God to borrow the language of Hebrews. And he says the same thing here. We are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We are under King Jesus, governed by him, but simultaneously sojourners, merely strangers passing through, pilgrims, if you will, and exiles, living out life in a nation that's not ours. Listen, he continues, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Listen, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Now, remember, he's writing to Gentiles here. So he uses this language also a metaphorical way. If we as the church are the royal priesthood, the holy nation, if we are the people of Israel, then anyone who is not is the Gentiles. We are in exile among the Gentiles, and he says, he says here, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. One last little de- uh, detail there. The day of visitation is synonymous with the return of Christ. Okay? The idea here is not that they'll see Jesus show up in your daily life and go, oh, this is what the Christians were talking about. It's at the great white throne judgment they won't be able to uphold any criticism against you because we're vindicated. Jesus really is on the throne, okay? The idea, though, is that our conduct is to be honorable. In fact, we see the same tension in the following verses. Here it has to do specifically with government. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so basically he says, as you're living under other governments, In nations that have other kings, he says, be subject to them for Jesus' sake. But I want you to notice also, he says, we are to do it as those who are free. Look again at verse 16. Live as people who are free. Be subject, but you're free. It's not you're free and are unaccountable to government as it is. You are, the freedom is greater than that accountability. I've been chewing on these words from uh, Richard Bachman 
in his book, uh, Politics According to the Bible, for months. This is what he says, just summarizing Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New. He says, Israel is best described as a freed people, right? The Exodus is the big defining earmark of Israel. I brought you out of Egypt. He says, but in the New Testament, the church is best described as freed, or excuse me, Old Testament freed slaves. New Testament free slaves. In other words, notice what he says here about that freedom. He says, live as people who are free, not using as your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we're free, but we're also servants. Do you see how there's a balance here in these things, a both and? The two mistakes that we can make that are the biggest would to think that somehow, because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, we are no longer accountable to the world around us, and instead we're called just to disappear and set up our own nation and live out our own ways. Now, it's not that Christians haven't done that a thousand times over. Welcome to America, right? That is the beginning and the earliest aspects of our history was people who were looking for a place where they could build things after their own design, have freedom to worship as they saw fit. But here, the presence is important. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the world, he assumes presence. When he says, you are the light of the world, he assumes presence. When Peter calls us exiles, he assumes presence. And not just presence, but going back to Jeremiah chapter 29, participation. We're not just conscientious objectors who are there and visible, always going, oh, no, thank you. Actually, I'm going to abstain from that. We're here, we're visibly abstaining, but actual participants seek the welfare of the city. Tertullian, a few centuries after Jesus, the... uh, Christians throughout the Roman Empire began to be heavily criticized for being un-Roman, unpatriotic, and bad citizens. And he said, actually, I think we as Christians are the best citizens. And he laid out in his apology, and uh, apology is a defense, not an I'm sorry, okay? He laid out in his defense, which he's just called the apology, um, uh, all of the ways that Christians seek the best of the empire. Pray for the emperor, okay, and these types of things. He says, if you truly understand as a Christian your heavenly citizenship, then you'll truly be a better and responsible citizen on earth, present and participating. Seek the welfare, even if it's Babylon. Even if it's Babylon whose judgment is impending. Read the rest of Jeremiah. Even if it's Babylon who is diametrically opposed to who you are and doesn't always leave room for you to have a voice, seek the welfare of the city. Here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that it is appropriate for Christians to be involved in their communities, to go to city council meetings, to be employed as policemen and judges and even politicians, to be engaged 
and seeking to build in the world as it is. Knowing that this is temporary doesn't change the fact that what our city is trying to do, what our country is trying to do, is based on the foundation, again, of God's good creation. That people are fed should concern us. That justice is done should concern us. That cities where flourishing can happen should concern us. That there's a place for rest and for the arts and for lots of employment and production should concern us. We are to seek the welfare of the city. We are to be participants. In fact, I would suggest to you that if we as Christians are right, if the truth really is the truth, if we know these things to be good and even be able to define and discern the difference between good and evil, then we really should be the best citizens. We should make better police officers, better mayors, better judges. But simultaneously, we're to live as free. Simultaneously, we are to see ourselves as exiles. Simultaneously, we are to maintain our own practices. Okay. Let me put it a few different ways just to nail this down. The church is not the temple of the city. It's the promise of another city. The church doesn't serve the world as it is in playing its own part. It actually lives under another rule entirely, under another government entirely. As Paul, Peter says here in his letter, he says, we are the servants of God, and therefore we freely subject ourselves to the world around us, but effectively, we have another master. We report to another leader. Now, obviously, laying out these two places gives us the tension that the Bible lays out, but the question becomes, how do we do that? What I'd suggest to you is, here, here is the important point. It's so simple. When we're asking about what is our role as Christians in political engagement, it only comes down to two things. One, love your neighbor. Two, witness the coming kingdom. Represent the coming kingdom. That's it. All of our political engagement. And, and obviously, recognize here, I'm not just talking about the values you vote on. It's so much more than that. I'm talking about your engagement with your neighbors that sometimes engages with government, but also engages in issues like education. Also participates in, you know, clean up the park days. There's so many things. One of the greatest problems of our time is that America has so over-politicized life that we think the only way to get something done is to make the government do it, to use coercion to get it done. And so we as Christians vote our values, and we want the government to rule the sword on that behalf, but that's not actually what changes people's values. Coercion is important. Okay? Justice is important. But there are other ways to love our neighbors more ways, okay? In fact, here's the problem. Because we've so over-politicized things, oftentimes we think of our political engagement, and let me just pause for a second. Political comes from the word polis, the word for city. Civic comes from the word civitas, the word for city, one in Greek, one in Roman, okay? And so seek the welfare of your city is a political act. Teaching at a local high school is a political act. 
participating in building a new park is a political act. I, I think we've got to widen out our vision here and talk about the generic view of politics. Um, but, but here's the problem that many American Christians find themselves in. Because the religious right in particular has been driving the responsibility of Christians voting for the last few decades, right? If you don't vote, you're not representing Christ. You're not being responsible. They've been driving that so hard, and I don't think it's untrue, but it's made us think if we vote, then we're responsible enough. If the only way you supposedly love your neighbor is in the voting booth, you misunderstand the calling. You defer to government things that probably shouldn't be deferred. And here's the truth, and a lot of you know it. Government is not always the best way to get things done. Okay. There are things that government can do really well that are hard for us to do. Okay. But there are other things that there are other solutions for. Okay. So... Seek the welfare of the city, but be distinct. Both love your neighbor and witness the coming kingdom. Here's a metaphor I've been, I've been rolling around in my mind for what it means to witness the coming kingdom. The moon, as you may, may remember from science, reflects the light of the sun, even when it's night, right? Neither does the moon go, well, I'm not the sun and day's not here, so I'm not going to shine, nor can it disconnect itself and see itself as a light-giving entity. It's just in a position where it reflects the reality that the sun is still here and coming. That's what our witness is like. Okay? We're not trying to build the kingdom here on earth, but we are seeking to reflect it. And obviously, the primary way we do that is right here, in the confines of this community, the church, where God's rule is already active. Okay. One of the biggest ways we witness to the coming kingdom of God is to live out that kingdom in our midst. Okay. Now, what I'm going to suggest is, with those two goals in mind, represent Christ and the coming kingdom. Love your neighbor I want to suggest to you that there's four different postures we take as Christians. Okay? And they're built around a, a construct that I use all the time. Okay? If we want to understand the story that God tells, we do it in four chapters or four parts. Creation. God made the world and it was good. The fall. What God made because of sin has been corrupted. Death and the curse. Fallen bodies. Fallen world. Fallen hearts. Okay. Redemption. God sent Jesus Christ to set those things right. And consummation. Jesus will one day return to finish what he started. Okay. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Because all of those are vital to understanding where we live, they all touch our life as it is now. I would suggest four postures, one for each category. And I've even started every one of them with a W so that you can remember them. Okay. The first one is the posture we take as we seek the good of the city, as we live as distinctly under Jesus, but we love our neighbor and represent the kingdom. The first one is as worshipers. Here's the thing. A lot of the things that our city is after are good. 
Now, it doesn't mean they're perfect. They're just as tainted by sin as our own lives are. But the church has a significant role to play in affirming God's goodness and creation and God's good design. Okay. Now, I think this one is essential to recover for us as Christians because the primary posture of all politics, left and right and everything in between right now, is negative. It is about setting boundaries and avoiding what we most fear and these types of things. We very rarely take a positive and say, this is good. Okay? What I'm suggesting to you is, and I mean this in strictly theological terms, that's why I used the idea of worship, that we should interact with the world and affirm the things God made as good. Work and rest, for example. creation in its whole, okay? I think Christians should think that national parks are important and valuable, okay? Because it reflects God's beauty and God's glory. We should say this is a good thing. I think we should see productivity and the producing of new goods and innovation and technology as goods that God has made. Now let me draw you back to something. Last week we talked about how all the good things God made can go bad when they become God things, when they become divine, when they become too important. And so I want to remind you that all these things are limited good. Family is by God's design a good thing. But when it's elevated to being ultimate, it goes wrong. Productivity, cultivation, creation, subcreation, making stuff is good. But when it becomes exploitive of worker or environment or these types of things, it goes wrong. But just because something is a limited good doesn't mean it's not something we praise God for and should enjoy to the fullest. Okay? Just because we have Christ, our Sabbath, and he's the true and ultimate Sabbath, doesn't mean you should never take a break. Rest is still good. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It's God's gift to you. And so we should desire that all people in our nation experience rest, Sabbath, enjoyment. Okay. Now, I could walk down the list of all these things, but do you see how we need to step in? Another thing we do is we affirm the value of human life. Because all are given the dignity of being in, uh, uh, made in the image of God. All human life is valuable. And that isn't forfeit, that value, because of sin or irresponsibility or these other things. And so that means even when punishment is necessary, we demand dignity. The dignity must be retained because God made human beings and they are good. And so we've got to find a way to engage on this level and say, the things that you're about, world, they're not necessary evils. Let me remind you that you should be a lover of Seattle, not because it's perfect. That's not what lover means. Let me remind you that you should be a lover of America, and that doesn't mean a sold-out patriot. American can do no wrong. It means that you want what's best for America. Okay. And one of the reasons why you should love the city it's because that's how the Bible ends. In the book of Revelation, with a city. When we witness to the goods here, we witness to the fact when we worship God and affirm these goods, 
we can do so in a way that points to God's design. Okay. The second thing, though, because our world is fallen, because those limited goods can turn into ultimate goods, because government can supersede its banks like we talked about last week and become inherently, innately anti-God. In fact, if you read the Revelation, it can become antichrist. It's the whole idea. It's, in te- in, it's, it's tremendously political in its nature. Because of that, we need to fulfill the role of the prophet. Okay? Or, to use a W, the church should be a watchdog. It should call out the powers that be on their crap. Okay? If you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, they are the ones who stand before kings. And they remind them of a handful of things. They remind them of right and wrong. They remind them of the limitedness of their rule and the fact that it was given to them by God. And they remind them of the accountability that will come with their job. Okay. That is another role we play. As watchdogs, we step in and we go, this is out of your jurisdiction. We step in and go, you are not as important as you say you are. We step in and we go, there is such a thing as justice and this is unjust. We step in and go, don't forget that your reign and rule is not permanent and eternal. We step in and go, every decision you make you will be held accountable to. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus divides humanity into two groups, sheep and the goats. And he says to the sheep, Enter into the joy that was prepared before you, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they say, when did you do that? When did we do that to you? And he says, as often as you did it to the least of me, you did it to me. And then he turns to the goats and he says, woe to you because you did not feed me when I was hungry. Right? One of the ways that that passage is often read that I think is pretty compelling is that that's not a division of individuals. It's a division of nations. And and the reason is because it says that he goes to the nations. That's what it says in the Greek. And the question is, is that as individuals or is that as national entities? But clearly, Christ is going to call into account all the governments that be. And so the watchdog steps up and reminds of that accounting. Now here's one of the ways that this plays out that's important. We as Christians, because government and institutions in general are part of God's good design, we should want strong, and by strong I don't mean inflated, I don't mean overly powerful, I don't mean iron-fisted, but we should want strong institutions. Okay? And so we come, and sometimes what we do is we call people to be what they're called to be. We come to police and say, your job is to protect the innocents, to maintain order. Do it. We don't go, police, get rid of them. We call them to be what they're supposed to be. And it's the same thing with government. Okay, so as worshipers, as watchdogs, But because Jesus Christ is king and one day will be king over all, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, our role must also be one as witness. Now again, the primary way we witness is not 
like the watchdog, speaking and calling them out on being what they should be, but by being what we should be. That's what it means to be a witness. In fact, the word that's used in the New Testament for witness is so much about life, it became the word for death. It's the word martyr. Okay. Those who died for Christ were called the witnesses. And that language has evolved so much, we don't think of lives for Christ when we think of martyrs, we think of deaths for Christ. But what I'm suggesting to you is, we are to be a microcosm of the coming kingdom. You know when they build an entire development of houses and they have the demo house, and they build that first so you can come in and see what it looks like? That's what we're to be as the church. That's why repentance, Paul says, begins at the house of God. If we're concerned about racism out there, we better figure out a way to have unity in the blood of Christ in here. If we're going to be concerned about taking care of poverty out there, then we should live as the New Testament church did when there was no poor among them. That's where the witness begins. Now, if I can go back again to Constantine, right, the great punching bag for when Christianity goes wrong, when the church marries power. Again, I would suggest to you that's not the best reading of that story, but I do want to suggest to you a better reading really quickly to make a point. What if, what if the watching world sees what the church is doing and goes, that's good. Can you teach us to do that? That's where Christendom actually came from even though it had its downsides and downfall. It came from the church actually being the church and everybody going, wait a minute, how do you do that? Hold on, we can't make sense of these things. A historian of the Roman church, a servant of one of the early emperors in the second century, he wrote about Christians. Oh, actually, it's Emperor Julian. Okay, I remember now. He wrote about Christians and he said, they take care not only of their poor, but ours. And he wasn't a believer. He called Christianity a superstition. But he couldn't get around the fact that it was compelling. It was a new way of living. It showed a good king and a good kingdom. Okay. Obviously, another part of that is that we proclaim this message. And so we should be interested in what we call in our culture religious liberty. The ability for us to proselytize. A way for us to communicate the gospel. Now we're going to do it whether that way is open or not. We must say like Peter and John did. You tell us whether we should obey God or men. But we cannot help but share what we have seen and heard. But one of the reasons Paul in 1 Thessalonians tells us we should pray for authorities in charge. Is so we can live peaceful and quiet lives. And then he says this. Because God desires all men to come to repentance. We should pray for the welfare of our community so that we have the freedom to share the gospel and invite people into another community. Okay. And so sometimes that witness is going to be discipling the nations. Going to those in power and saying, here's a better way to do things. And history is ripe with the church doing that. Modern hospitals... Christian idea. Okay. All sorts of welfare, Christian idea. Just war, Christian idea. Okay, all of these things have stemmed from the church. The world has been so significantly impacted by Christianity that we can't even see 
the impact anymore because we take it so for granted. All of that's good. It's right. It's the way it should be and it should continue. When the world faces a new problem, churches should be the first to figure it out. If you're really afraid, like I am, of what technology is doing to us as humans, Christians should figure out a way, lead a way forward. But there's one more, okay? So because of creation and its goodness, we are worshipers, and we worship publicly and affirm the good things and pursue, that, pursue them shoulder to shoulder as limited goods. Then also, we pursue things because our world has fallen as watchdogs, reminding people that this is not all there is, that there will be an account, that there's limits to these things, that justice must be done. Then, as witnesses, testifying of another kingdom that will be here shortly as a sample, as a prototype. And then finally, as waiters. Okay, and I don't mean serving tables. I mean those who wait. I just wanted that fourth W. Okay. Here's what I mean. I mean, we know that although these things are absolutely good to pursue, we know that although we can make a significant difference on the world as it is, it will never be the kingdom of God until the kingdom comes. And that does a couple of paradoxical things. For one, it keeps us from putting all our eggs in this basket of investing in a way that assumes we can make it happen here and now in our own strength. This is the problem, by the way, with American benevolence. We are convinced that if the willpower is there, we can solve all these problems. You cannot. When Jesus says, the poor you have with you always, that's not an excuse not to take care of the poor. But it is a sober reminder, isn't it? On top of that, because we are waiters, we do these things with hope, knowing that it may be night and we shine as the moon, but the sun is coming and will come. Justice will be done on the earth. Every tear will be wiped away. A city will be perfectly laid out and designed and community will rule without sins breaking it all the time. And so we serve with hope. One of the ways that I think this should be reflected is nobody should handle political failure better than Christians. The world should look at when we are co-belligerents and join them in their projects and say, we're doing the same thing you are, but for different reasons, and then it all falls apart. They should look at us and go, why are you so resilient? Why are you not crushed when everything just fell apart? And we say, because we know the end of the story. And we say, because this was important, it was valuable, and it will be done, but it was never going to be done done. And so we operate as waiters, calling, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, waiting patiently, saying like the early church did, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But we're not just to watch, are we? We're also to work. We're to be about our business. We're to do these things. When you put those four together, and they pursue those two goals of loving our neighbor and representing the kingdom of Christ. I think you basically cover the gamut of what we need to do as Christians. Now we're not done, because we still need to talk about love, justice, and wisdom. And just to illustrate, 
Knowing what we should be doing and knowing the best way to do it are not the same thing. Knowing biblical principles and knowing how to apply those principles in our time are not the same thing. And so wisdom is a significant component of this, which if we just owned up to with some humility, would save us a lot of ridiculous fighting. Because that's the hard part of politics. It's the how. It's the with whose money. It's with who in charge. It's with what methodology. Okay. But we'll come back to that. Here's, again, the, the image I want to leave you with. Effectively, we as Christians are like an embassy. But instead of being an embassy of a parallel nation on another continent, we're an embassy in time. We're an embassy from the future. We live in the midst of other nations that are not ours, strangers and exiles. We represent a nation that is coming and, and live to serve that government. But we also participate in the world we live in. Right, an ambassador can't run a red light and then when he gets pulled over and go, I'm not one of your citizens. This is where he lives. In fact, it's even more. I was trying to think about this. Do you think an American ambassador can run for mayor of the city he's living in? Probably not. I would assume there's some sort of um, problem with that. But we as Christians, we should be, again, full participants, representing the kingdom to come, living in the land that it is, and wanting flourishing here. And that flourishing both means filled stomachs and good work schedules and warm houses and also know Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Okay. When we understand our role as the church in that way, like Israel during the exile, like exiles in the midst of Babylon, waiting for redemption, waiting for the consummation of God's plans, but waiting in a way that participates in the world as it is. When we operate in the posture of a worshiper and a watchdog and a witness and one who's waiting, then we fulfill the commission that God has given us. And there's so many ways that this just loops back on itself. When we are good citizens, this is so ironic, it makes the kingdom of God compelling. When we lean heavily into the kingdom of God and following Jesus, we become better citizens. Our real problem is that we settle for less. We draw a little box around political engagement. We become a single-issue voter or just a voter. We define ourselves by a particular party instead of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We constantly assume if only it weren't for all those people out there, we could really have a perfect nation, right? Do you have that problem? I have that problem where I just think, oh, I want these things and I assume that the best way to get them is to go somewhere else and do them there. I want a greater family, but my family's a dud. We have to live where we are. And that's where life is made. Not pandering to dreams of possibilities that are just possibilities. Not consoling our inactivity. Because if we had our way, if we were in charge, we'd do better. Let me make one last suggestion to you and then we'll close. 
one of the things that this requires is a Christian rediscovery of vocation. That God's calling is not just for missionaries, but for mayors. In fact, it's not just for people in positions of power, but also people in positions of service. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, if you're going to be a street sweeper, be the best street sweeper to the glory of God. That's vocation. A participant that recognizes the role that you've been given as it is now, whether it's as student or employee or employer, whether it's as citizen of this city or member of this organization or person in this neighborhood, that's the venue God has given you to love your neighbor and represent him. One last thing. If all of this is true, if it's so broad, you don't have to do, nor are you called to do everything. It's totally okay to be a specialized Christian, to have an issue that you focus on trying to make a difference. It's totally okay for you to go, I have no idea about any of those things, but here's what I do know. It's totally okay for you to go, for me, I've got to focus on the local level, and for others to say, I need to express concern at the national level. That multifaceted diversity is by design. And God works in us to will and to do. He's given you particular desires, particular compassions, particular giftings. Lean into them. And be okay, because nobody called you to save the world. That's already taken care of. Let's pray. Father, we need a reset of our hearts and our mind and our imagination. When we start with the world as it is and with the possibilities that we know and the politics as they stand, we can get off base. But when we lay this foundation and stand upon it, we begin again. And so we pray, Lord, that you would reset our hearts, that we would live out our lives as a witness to Christ and a lover of our neighbor, that other people's good would be worth our blood, our sweat, our tears, that we would seek the welfare of the city where we find ourselves, and God, I can't think of a place that needs that more than Seattle. Everyone here is just passing through. Everyone here grumbles about the city. There are no I heart Seattle shirts. Lord, I pray that even in our little church that you would make us better citizens of the city that seek for this city to flourish. That we'll both hold government accountable for what they do with our money but will feel worthwhile in investing in a future that we may not partake of. And we thank you, Lord, that what's required of your servant is faithfulness, not accomplishment. And that means we can never see what it is we're seeking and still honor you. So I pray, Lord, we'd live comfortable in our moment, in our neighborhood, in our giftings, in our calling and vocation and that we would be responsible and engaged citizens.
which is just a bigger word for neighbors. And I pray, Lord, that we do it in a way that constantly points to you. As you call us to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, let our light so shine. Let our light shine in such a way that the world sees our good works and glorifies our Father in heaven. That is our heart, Lord. I pray that you'd accomplish it in the voting booth, in the public forum, in the coffee shop, on the subway, and over the fence of our backyard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.